Welcome back to Free Will as a Scam. With our sixth episode, we decided it was time to actually take on the title of the podcast and discuss free will. For this conversation, we didn't focus on a specific text. We instead talked about different philosophers and, and different problems around free will, highlighting the work of Spinoza, Avicenna, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Dennett, Harris, among others. And we really enjoyed it, so we hope you do too. Here we go. Anyway, uh, yeah. so um, Free Will is a Scam is the title of the podcast, and we haven't had a good conversation on free will. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a, it, we just kept coming back to it in class. And so I thought this would be fun to talk about it with you two. It's funny how that works with some classes, you know. For some reason, I had I had a class that just always came back to the fundamentals of epistemology, or whether or not you can know something. Yeah. So much so that I designed a philosophy elective for electives week, where in which I distinctly wrote that this is not a class where we're going to be discussing whether or not we can know things. <laughs> 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 I was so sick and tired of the same like cycling, ridiculous epistemological struggle. But I kind of see the so the free will and the can you know things in in the similar category. But um, uh, I find them both at this point in my life a little tedious as 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 topics because I've sort of made my decision on that. Now I want to talk about things that matter. But I know that when I first approached these questions, they were really important. <laughs> so I don't mean to like, you know, diminish their importance, but I have a knee-jerk reaction to to some of these philosophical questions that I've sort of decided on. But anyway. Well, I mean, that's a good place to start as any. What have you decided? Well, I know Betsy actually did some reading for this. So I was going to let, she had a lot to say before we jumped on this, so I wanted to let her lead the way. My reading had nothing to do with your decision, Micah. I know, we can talk about my decision later. Maybe I can put it in a more constructive context, so I'm not just like, well, I believe, well, you know. What have you folks talked about in class, Lucas? I don't want to read Dread. Uh, well, okay, so a few of our conversations, I'll just, I'll lay out a few things. One was around Avicenna, uh, or Ibn Sina, he's known as also. He's a Persian philosopher. He's, he precedes um, Descartes' discussion of the necessary, the possible, and the impossible uh, in terms of being. And he, uh, he also precedes a lot of Descartes' structure for how Descartes uh, constructed a, his, his ontological arguments. And, but the, the big thing we were looking at, which kind of got us onto this is, is that there's only one necessary being. The infinite regress makes it impossible for there to be otherwise. There's just, it's, it's the, the core of existence is one necessary thing, uh, according to Avicenna. And that seems to make sense. Uh, otherwise we get into a infinite regress and, and nothing makes sense. And if you, if you, accept that necessary being, then you accept that everything is part of the necessary being. And Avicenna says we're, everything that exists that in, in our 
the phenomenal world is all just um, what Spinoza would call just attributes of the necessary being. And if that's the case, then everything that exists is is just a, a part of this one thing. Therefore, how can any single piece have its own agency? And if no piece has its own agency, then we have no free will. Now, I, I, I understand that there are several ways to think about that. One is in a predeterminate way, and the other is in a determinate way, which is not predeterminate. So yeah, there are usually the non-free will argument that sort of umbrellas most of the arguments against free will are called determinism. And there are quite a few different deterministic arguments, and one being the predeterminism. Um, we see it in myth and religious, um, some religious stories as, you know, almost a fatalism, right? And then in certain types of Protestantism as a predetermination by God um, rather than fate, let's say. And then that's separate from all of the scientific determinisms that mostly come about through Newton and Newton's work. There's also a sort of related but unscientific argument that I think is called something like the consequence argument, which is just that everything is the consequence of past actions. So it sort of builds up a type of determinism where it isn't predetermined, but it's less about being subject to natural law, which is an argument that a lot of scientific determinism makes, right? That because everything is subject to natural law, we too must be subject to natural law. And if the actions of all non-human things are determined by natural law, we likewise must be determined by natural law. So the idea of us having free will and a stone not having free will breaks down. But the consequence argument is really more like, you know, the butterfly flapping its wings type of thing, right? That like everything has a consequence and those consequences build up. And so that's one that gets around certain anti-deterministic arguments. Are those anti-deterministic or anti-predeterministic? It can be an anti-deterministic argument. Well, I mean, it, it depends on which type of determinism you're talking about, because there can be determinism that isn't predeterminism, that also isn't, strictly speaking, scientific determinism, right? Like, determinism is really just you buy into a certain set of laws that everything is subject to, right? And so those laws might be scientific, or they might be sort of logical, but not biological, I don't know, you know? Um, so the consequence thing, I guess like scientific determinism, you could analyze it down to determine <laughs> the, each step in the causal chain, but it's not necessarily a predeterminism, right? Because as long as things are operating within natural law, we don't need, you know, they, they needn't have been planned in advance, but once they occur, inevitabilities ensue. Right. This is Spinoza's central structure where there's 
essentially each each thing from the initial being or from the the only necessary being the only existed being because he uses similar language to uh to avicenna which is again not a mistake because avicenna is transmitted through the uh jewish iberians who then uh spinoza comes through from in his you know from his dutch um uh what do you call them um their community of Christians in the Netherlands who are of Jews who were Christians. They're called the... Not the Huguenots. No, they're Jews, but ah. they were Christians in Spain. But they were Jews in secret. And then they, they moved to the Netherlands and they came they, they came out as Jews again. And Spinoza said, I, I don't care, I'm an atheist. Well, he didn't say that. But. Although if you haven't read Spinoza's... Uh, the excommunication letter of the Jewish community to Spinoza. It's pretty awesome. Um, they really rip into it. Do we know that he read? Or do we suspect? We know that he read a lot of things that were translated from Arabic in Iberia into languages he read by other Jews. And so there is, in terms of transmission, this is where it gets very tricky. Um, I don't know enough to know, to answer this very well. But what I do know is that translations of everything he would have read, whether they be, in, whether they be Greek in origin or Roman, in, or Roman in origin or North African or Middle Eastern or whatever in origin, they all would have come through Arabic and through Arabic translation into whatever languages he was reading through the Iberian Peninsula. So there's a good chance, but we're not sure. He's in the line of transmission from the people that were doing the work. So Right, but he's not saying, like, like this guy said, because I've read him X, Y, Z. The thing with Spinoza is he doesn't reference anybody. Sure, but I'm, I just mean, like, look, like, I'm pretty sure Jane Austen read Mary Wollstonecraft. Right, okay, so I can it. say this. Everybody read Avicenna. Okay. You know, he's one of these names sure. that everybody knew, which means everybody yeah. read him, because they read everybody, right? These right. highly literate people. Anyway, the, yeah. the, the, the main point here, to go to kind of circle back to his idea of, uh, is, is almost exactly what Betsy was talking about with the sort of, Science, natural law, I won't say scientific, but the natural law version of determinism where, where once the necessary existing one thing goes into motion, everything else is determined by whatever little flap of the wings came before it. And what, what interested me, which I'm super resistant to on a, like, on a visceral level, but seems really rational is the idea that this extends to every single aspect of our being and that whatever we are currently doing is the only thing that could happen as a result of the, the chain of causation that came and led up to this moment. It wasn't predetermined, it wasn't planned. There's no book, there's no fate, there's no destiny. It's just that we're only doing what we can do in the moment and that, and there's only one thing we can do. That's kind of what Spinoza is saying. See, that, that last part that 
there's only one thing we can do is the part that has never made any sense to me. Like, it's always been very clear to me that I could do any number of things at any given moment for any number of reasons. And in fact, I've sat there like uh, confused as to why I couldn't make up my mind between one, two, six, eight, ten things. So there's a difficulty, uh, there are a lot of difficulties with the free will thing, but two of the big difficulties, which are really, you know, branches of the same difficulty is this sort of intuitive sense, right? So like people tend to have an intuitive sense that they're making choices and that their actions are based on choices. We have a feeling that we have freedom and agency and that our freedom and agency could be constrained. We could have a gun to our head or we could live in a society that imposes certain structures on us that we internalize that impact our choices, but we can feel a sense of freedom and the ability to make choice or a desire to, if we live in a strict society, we can imagine that, you know, there exists a potential where we could exercise some sort of free choice. So that's sort of like niggling thing, right? Which Spinoza, I think, and also Hume think of as an illusion that we have this feeling, but it's just an illusion. So forget it. And then sort of another branch of that same tree is this kind of maybe equally unprovable intuition that, well, it makes sense that every single experience that we have informs every choice we're going to make in the future. And that if we were to analyze everything that's ever happened to us, all of the different stimuli that have come into play, if we had access to all of the data that we could use to analyze what might potentially go into our decision-making, that we would probably be able to predict our choices with much greater accuracy. Maybe to a point where we could predict it most of the time. And one could say, well, then do we have free will at all? Or do we have the illusion of freedom? You know, that if we could really study it well enough, we could see that, you know, given all of the information, it's not free will at all. It's not that the choices are predetermined, but they're based on, you know, all of the stimuli, all of the experiences all of the blah. And somebody talked to it's So it's Richard Holden, who's just, he's an MIT professor. And I've listened to a couple of his talks. He talks about a frustration machine, which is really just a silly thought experiment where in his example, you have to predict whether a light bulb will be on or off at noon. And so you need to, you need to make your prediction before noon and the way you're going to show your prediction is by turning your own little light bulb, which you have in front of you, off or on. If you think that the light bulb at this other location will be on at noon, you turn your light bulb on. If you think that that light bulb will be off at noon, you leave your light bulb off. And you need to make this decision before noon. And you need to stick with that decision. And so in this frustration machine, there's a detector that detects whether you've turned your light on or not. And if it detects that you've turned your light on, it leaves its light off. If it detects that your light is off, it turns your light on. And so there's no way to beat the frustration machine, right? And so he posits that humans are basically frustrators. We're basically our own frustration machine because whenever we're confronted with a free will question, 
we're like, well, I could have done something else. In fact, now I'm going to do the opposite of what I would have done if I hadn't been confronted with this problem. And now I'm exercising free will. But someone watching the frustration machine can say, no, the detector, you know, you know, you're just frustrating this because you now think that you have the free choice by doing something opposite, but actually it's consistent with your character, blah, 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 that you would do this thing. See, I, I really think this is overcomplicating. And, I, and, and you know, and, and this may be because I did make my own determination of this issue 25 years ago and it just stuck with it. I think of it as that there's a lot of logical truth or I should say logical validity in, in everything that you're describing Lucas and, and in this experiment, you know, uh, I can definitely see over the course of your life, you know, a series of stimuli that you are programmed genetically or whatever to react to and that that creates these interweaving patterns and that essentially you don't get any choice. I see the validity of it. But the problem with that is that we're not single valent beings. We're complicated beings. Um, I think it would be an almost entirely another hour of discussion if we determined this. But I'm not sure animals have anything like consciousness the way that we have. And I think that our free will essentially comes from that consciousness. And there's a whole conversation around consciousness that we, again, take a long time to have. But because of our complexity, we don't have a single thread that is our existence. We've got a, a multivalent history. We have different sides of ourselves, different personalities that come out um, under different circumstances. And we have to choose between those selves and those decisions and those parts of our, uh, the things that we value. And we have to choose between them all the time. You know, and if you're, if you're the least bit considerate about how you approach life, you have to make these choices all the time based on, you know, because there are so many cost benefit analyses that go into every thoughtful day. There's so many bargains that we make with ourselves about what's important for us right now. And we have to navigate something that is almost you know crystalline in its complexity which is our individual consciousness that you know yes it is bound by reality yes reality is limiting and yes reality is of great force for determining the stimuli that we respond to but we do in fact get to respond to it and we get to make those choices and we have to figure out so often if you're like I said if you're a thoughtful person like how how you you know what food are you going to eat you know like what trip are you going to take you know how are you going to raise your kids what are the what is the decision you're going to make now because you made a different decision yesterday and you're trying to balance a scale that's important to you tomorrow etc cetera, etc cetera. there's there's so many parts of you that you know we're just too complicated for all the determining factors to come down one single pathway. What if all that complexity you're talking about is just the only thing that you as a, as an attribute of the one being can do. And, and I, I mean this in a sense that what if you, Micah are such a complex attribute of the one being 
that you have all these ratiocinations. And so they, they run through you and cause you to uh, feel as if you're making these complex choices. Whereas there's other beings who are, well, not beings, other attributes, Spinoza would call them, of the being that are far simpler for whom these complex analyses don't happen as much. And so their end result choice in any given moment is its own choice. What that, to me, that seems like the, the complexity of the machine is immaterial to the possibility that it's all just a chain of, of causation, whether it be a complex chain or a simple chain. Lucas, look at our cat. <gasps> Giddy cat. Oh my God, that's yeah. such a cute meow. Yeah, it really is. She does it all the time. It's amazing. <laughs> Let's talk. I'm going to spoil our cat by giving her meat. Because she's an obligate carnivore. <laughs> okay, so my response. Um, my response is kind of, to, with all due respect to Spinoza's genius, which certainly far measures mine, like, so what? Like, imagine. Imagine there's a one being... Imagine that I'm not as complex and you're not as complex as I perceive us to be. Imagine that it's all an illusion. Imagine that I'm the I'm living on a on a pebble in the middle of a nothingness. Imagine, imagine. I can imagine a lot of things. I can imagine that instead of there being a one being, that there's a there, that we're all part of two beings, or there's a tripartite being like a trinity, or maybe there's a quadra being that we're all a part of, and there's complicated people and simple people and you know, I don't, I'm not really, I don't find that kind of imagining very compelling. I actually kind of find it annoying. And this is kind of where I come down because this is sort of like, for Spinoza, genius that he is, it's a pretty impressive thing for him to be talking about 400 years ago or whatever it is. And, you know, for my adolescent teenage students, when they bring this kind of thing up, it's, um, you know, it's annoying and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And either way, I don't find it compelling because like I can imagine a lot of things. What I perceive to be true and what seems logical and valid to me in the moment, is, I don't have any more proof for that than he does for his, you know, one being thesis. You know, he's just got like this like chain of axioms or whatever it is that he's doing, which is, again, pretty impressive. but. It's not compelling to me. It doesn't carry the weight of evidence any more or less than what I posited. So at the end, it's like, I'm saying yes, and he's saying no, and and neither of us can prove it, which, you know, gets a little frustrating to think about. But isn't that a lot of metaphysics? Sometimes, yeah. But I think in, in metaphysics, what you can, yes, and some of it, and some metaphysics is very um, irritating in that same way where but also is the weight of evidence what you're going with on this um no what i'm looking for in this is something that is uh and this is one of those this is where you and i betsy were talking earlier about the difference between like scientific evidence as we think of it today and philosophizing you know to philosophizing and science are distinctly different things in the way that we formulate them today. And I think of philosophy as compelling arguments and not compelling arguments. I can, I can see a logic to some philosophy and then an over logic to some philosophy. And 
um, we were talking about uh, what's his name, the African guy, a couple of weeks ago. Apia. 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 And you know, he's he's in the sort of like hyperlogical school of philosophy that's always constructing logical positions. So when I'm talking about metaphysics, um, uh, like we are here, I need to hear compelling arguments from people who are smart. And I've, I've heard it and I don't, and I, yeah, I guess I, I, I really have no other way of responding to it except in that, like, I don't find it terribly compelling and I don't think he's being any more logical than I am or Hume. You know, I don't think Hume, especially Hume, actually, Hume isn't, isn't using his reason better than I am. He just finds that type of reasoning compelling. And this is the same argument that, like, Betsy, you brought up earlier, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett are, have been having and have, there's, there's actually a YouTube of them. They're both well, they, they don't agree, though. That's so what I'm saying. They're both atheists. They're both philosophers. Um, and they're both wickedly intelligent. And what is it about free will that splits them so in twain? In this particular case, as far as the Spinoza case is concerned, I just don't, you know, there's so many uh, little pieces of his, his logical construction that I don't find true. And then, then the imagine, if you will, quote, quote unquote, way of doing that is like, you know, like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I have free will and I sort of know that. So I, I, I feel like you're, well, I'll say a couple of things. One, I'm, I'll, I'll push back a little. I, I think Spinoza, the, the, the weight of his logic is, is to me very compelling, which is why I keep thinking about what he wrote. It's his logic that really is the most powerful element of, of I think of his work because he actually, he doesn't function, essentially he doesn't function with any kind of philosophical prose. He, he literally is just axioms, propositions, axioms, propositions, and they all are, are feeding each other. And I find all of them to be rational, reasonable, and logical. And then the case he builds is, is kind of overwhelming. So I don't think he has an uncompelling argument. And I think he has a very powerful logical argument. Now that might not be a compelling argument for other reasons, I think Betsy asked you whether you're talking about evidence as a key thing here. I, I sort of see the problem here, the, the gap, not as, as, you know, you have a separate logic here. And, and I do, because I, 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 th I think ultimately, like, my, all of my instincts are to agree with you on this. But I distrust all of that because it's illogical. Because I think Spinoza's got us cornered. No, I don't agree at all. I mean, he, he, there are so many presuppositions in his logical constructions. When I was reading it last year, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, well, you just got to say that in, in axiom number seven. And I'm not entirely sure you should be saying that. That's, that's an assumption of your own. I mean, I have to go back and read it all again. But it has an internal logic to it that is beautiful. That's, that's what I found, but I, but I don't think, you know, uh, let's go back to the way that you originally proposed the question, um, which was like, imagine if we're not as complex as we think we are, right? That's not what, no, 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 no. I, I, I said it's irrelevant. Our complexity is irrelevant because 
of an extremely complex human will simply have a, a, a much bigger machine with lots more moving parts and its end result action will just be more dependent on more factors that, came, that fed into it previous to the moment of decision, of perceived decision. Whereas a simpler machine will have its own perceived decision, whether the machine is simple or complex is irrelevant. Our output is really just, if, if we follow the logic here, the output is really just the only possible thing that that machine could produce as an attribute of everything. But you see, you see where I get, I can get a little frustrated by this because the, the original, the original proposition is there is no, but logically speaking, the original proposition is that we are, we're to use a metaphor, we're a piece of thread in, you know, to use a very hallowed mythological metaphor that our lives are a thread, right? And that the machine that makes the thread determine and will determine the end of the thread and all of the little bits of the thread in between are determined by this great machine. So my response is, no, we're not a thread. We're like many threads. And we always have to choose which color that we're going to use in any given moment. But then, but then the response is, oh, no, but what you really don't understand is the machine is even more complicated than that. And that the machine, you know, has determined that all of your threads are really just one thread because its complexity is more complex than your complexity. Its complexity is your complexity. And then we're just sort of like going in circles. And that concludes the first part of our conversation around free will. We went on for quite a bit longer and so we decided to break it up into two episodes. In the second episode, we get away from Spinoza and start to bring in conversation about Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and others. So stay tuned. Free Will is a Scam is produced by me with intro and outro music. by me. Thanks to Buzzsprout for hosting us.